Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. My podcasts often deal with distressing situations which are not suitable for children and some adults for that matter. Some of what I discuss may trigger uncomfortable emotions. If that does occur, please reach out to Lifeline, Beyond Blue or any other support service or person you feel comfortable with. Please keep in mind that there's always two sides, sometimes more, to every story. My guests provide their recollection of an event or incident, sharing their thoughts and their emotions, but it's theirs. Not everybody will agree with them. I never want to tell any guest what to say or what not to say, so there will always be others that see it differently, and I understand that. Hello, I'm Narelle Fraser. I was a cop with Victoria Police for 27 years, 15 of those as a detective, having dealt with all types of crime, from a stolen bicycle to a stolen life. I witnessed the effect crime has on those involved and became one of those victims myself in 2012 when I was diagnosed with PTSD. However, out of adversity comes other opportunities like this, my own podcast. I'm still pinching myself. Thanks for listening and coming with me as we explore the human side and impact of crime. We always do treat the deceased with respect, with respect to the person that they they once were, but now we're looking at, at the scientific object. My guest today has practised forensic pathology for over 25 years. Shelley Robertson's bio is incredibly impressive and actually makes my head spin. Shelley was at one stage a forensic pathologist with the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine, what we refer to as VIFM. And as a detective, sometimes we were tasked with conveying a body to VIFM where we were required to attend the autopsy Uh, observing the intricate, incredible work that a forensic pathologist does to determine the cause of death. That was Shelley behind the glass screen, gowned from head to toe, delicately, sensitively dissecting the deceased to determine what happened, when it happened and how it happened. Our job as detectives was to determine why it happened, where it happened and by whom. Shelley is a member of so many professional organisations I could spend half of my podcast detailing, but it's her interest in fatal aviation accident investigations that caught my eye. She completed a postgraduate diploma in aviation medicine and a master's degree in health sciences, 
Aviation Medicine from the University of Otago in New Zealand, and she's been awarded a fellowship of the Australasian College of Aerospace Medicine. And she's also got a law degree. See what I mean about your head spinning? Uh, She's currently an Honorary Senior Fellow, Department of Pathology, University of Melbourne, and now runs Forensair, a forensic and aviation pathology consulting business providing expert medical legal opinion in matters of unnatural death, homicide and aviation accidents. So I wonder what it feels like to conduct an autopsy. I wonder if Shelley ever felt affected during an autopsy. It's always impressed me how caring, considerate and gentle the pathologist was and they treated the deceased in the same way that they would somebody who was living. Shelley and her forensic pathologist colleagues must be very good, in fact exceptional, at compartmentalising their day's work from their personal life. I wonder if there was an autopsy that she did, which she's never forgotten. Well, welcome Shelley, and thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Norelle. Hi there. Hi. Uh, Shelley, I don't know if you're aware, but uh, my listeners probably are, but I don't have a TV and uh, at home. So whenever I'm away and I have time to watch some TV, apart from watching rerun after rerun of my beloved Tigers, they're numerous three, in fact, recent premierships, um, my next favourite program is Air Crash Investigators. And I was wondering, do you know of the show and what do you think of it? Yes, I do know of this show. And um, yes, it's very interesting. I watch them too. Do you? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I, I'm not sure what it is um, because they don't go into all the gore, really. It's more um, how they find out what happened is what interests me. And I suppose that's what you do. Yes. Well, I think the show highlights that uh, how uh, an accident investigation of that type um, goes about with getting people from all sorts of different fields and of expertise to give their opinions and put it all together and uh, in that way work out what happened and why and also prevent it happening again if possible. Yeah, I bet, I bet. And so I wonder what it is, Shelley, about fatal aviation accidents that interested you more than, say, a fatal motor vehicle accident or a homicide. What was it about fatal aviation? Well, I've always been interested in things aviation. Um, My father was very keen on aeroplanes. He desperately wanted to become a um, in the Australian Air Force, but was rejected because of a, um, a childhood problem with deafness, so he wasn't eligible to enlist. But um, we lived, when, as I was growing up, in the flight path of um, the then main Melbourne Airport, Essendon, and um, I remember Dad taking me out on his shoulders to watch the big planes flying overhead, and that always fascinated me. So, um, and I, I too... Um, have now joined the um, Royal Australian Air Force Specialist Reserve and um, just I'm very keen on all things aeroplane. So that led to my interest in aircraft aircraft accident investigation. So could you share with us um, a fatal avi- 
aviation accident that you were involved in and what were you able to find or not find? Um, well, what, as a forensic pathologist, we're looking for is the, um, the cause of death and if there were any factors affecting the pilot which may have caused or contributed to the accident. So we're looking, if you like, at the, the medical side of things. There are other experts, of course, um, for example, in the Australian Transport Safety Bureau that look at the uh, aeroplane side of things, but we're mainly looking at the pilot. Um, so the actual investigation is is really not different to that looking for um, what went on in a murder investigation or any other sort of accident investigation. You're looking for what the cause of death was and things that might have contributed to the cause of death. So what you're doing, Shelley, is um, instead of, if I got this right, instead of um, a victim of a homicide, your role in an, a fatal aviation accident is about the pilot or the people in the plane rather than the plane itself? Is there somebody else that um, examines the plane? That's not you. You are yours is the, the um, pilot, etc. Is that right, yes, the humans? That's, that's <laughs> right. We do the humans. Um, as I said, there's specialists in the Australian Transport Safety Board who look at the uh, actual aircraft and the um, things like the cockpit voice recorders and all that sort of stuff. That's their job but ours is to focus primarily on the the pilot but anyone else involved in the accident and see if we can um, give them some information that helps put it all together. So is it, would you say that, is it more so human error? Uh, No, how do I, I was just going to say my question, is it human error or mechanical often that uh, is why um, an aviation accident occurs, but you wouldn't know about the mechanical side, would you? So I suppose I'm asking from a human being side, can you tell if they've made an error? No, I don't suppose you could, could you? We can't, but we can sometimes say, for example, that things might have been affecting them. For example, if they've got severe heart disease or if they've been subjected to carbon monoxide poisoning or something like that, which may have caused the uh, accident to occur. Okay, righto. So is there a, a fatal air crash that's really stumped you uh, where you've been unable to determine the cause? Um it's not uncommon to um, to find that um, the pilot has no significant natural disease. For example, our um, Civil Aviation Safety Authority has fairly strict guidelines for getting um, enabling pilots to get licenses. So if they've got severe medical conditions, they're not supposed to be flying anyway. Um, so, no, we don't usually see things like that. But um, I think over the years I may have seen times when I thought something um, was present in the pilot which may have contributed to the accident. I suppose one of the main things you would always do, would it be to check, obviously, if he's um, if he or she is drug-affected or alcohol-affected? That would be one of your first things you'd do, wouldn't it? Yes, yes, definitely. So... 
I, I might just um, ask that question I asked before in a different way. So in your experience, what, uh, what is the main reason um, a fatal crash occurs? Is Do you believe it's human error or mecha- not human error, but due to a human doing something that was wrong or they shouldn't have done it or whatever, or a mechanical error? Oh, look, I'd really have to look at the statistics to say that. But I think um, probably in my experience, um, there is something that you can find that um, may well have contributed to the pilot causing the accident. But then again, as as we've previously said, I don't look at the bits of the aeroplane and, and see what else was going wrong or, or how that might have mattered. Have you ever flown? Have you ever been in an aeroplane or flown an aeroplane yourself? Uh, yes, I um, I started trying to get a flying license at one stage, but um, I had so I had a student um, pilot license. But it was I found that it was something that you needed to really concentrate on, and on, due to my um, work and. Um, other commitments, I was really only able to devote about a wear, uh, an hour a fortnight and, and that's really not enough. You've got to um, fly a lot more and become very confident and know what you're doing and I thought that it was perhaps best that I leave the flying to someone else. <laughs> but I'm happy to sit in an aircraft, yes. With, with all due respect, Shelley, if you've done an hour a fortnight, I don't think there's many people that would get in a plane with somebody that had done an hour a fortnight practice. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I certainly wouldn't either. No, no. Um, so apart from your interest in fatal aviation accidents, you've also been a forensic pathologist, as I mentioned before, con- conducting autopsies. Um, I haven't attended all that many, but I do find them fascinating, fascinating beyond words on so many levels. Like, However, I must admit, when the stomach contents are expelled and examined, I have no I re- no reason or no understanding why, but that's the only time I've ever felt really ill during an autopsy and it's happened every single time. Is there something about an autopsy when you get to a certain point in an autopsy where you feel just a little bit funny? No. <laughs> no, I don't think I can ever recall feeling a bit funny. No. <laughs> um, so what was it that interested you in becoming a forensic pathologist and dissecting a human body? Because it's not a, a career for the faint-hearted, is it? No, but um, well, as medical students, um, we um, were, worked on the dissection of a body as part of our anatomy training when we were um, very young. But um, when I finished my training in medicine and uh, worked for a few years in hospitals as a doctor, I decided that um, I was becoming more interested in pathology, which is the sort of science of illness and the scientific aspects um, were really um, attracting me. So I decided to specialise in pathology. So I did that. Um, for five or six years. And then just as I was finishing my pathology training, I heard about this new institute in forensic um, medicine being set up. And I thought, 
that sounds interesting. It's probably a bit more interesting than spending your life in the um, basement of a hospital staring down a microscope. So um, uh, I went along and persuaded them to give me a job and um, worked there for 20-plus years, yes. So can you take us into the world of a forensic pathologist and explain, if you can, why, when and how an autopsy is conducted, if you can take us through the process? Yes, um, an autopsy is conducted um, when a death certificate can't be signed for whatever um, legal reasons by the treating doctor or perhaps there is no treating doctor or there is any other suspicious circumstances occurring uh, or anything else occurring, such as a, an accident um, or a suicide, something that is obviously not natural causes and a death certificate can't be signed, well, in that case, the case is referred um, to the coroner um, and then to the Forensic Institute for uh, an autopsy or for a um, an investigation into the cause of death, not necessarily an autopsy, especially in these days of um, computerised scanning, um, CT scanning, um, may not be needed need to needed to uh, perform an autopsy. But um, that's the situation when an autopsy is um, necessary to obtain the cause of death. Mm-hmm. And and can you just take us through? how you do an autopsy? Like, say, from when the moment the deceased is brought in, um, how is the deceased brought in? Uh, you know, let's say the police bring them in. Are they brought in on a, a table or um, a bed? Can you just take us from the start? Uh, well, that's, again, not um, – certainly wasn't my um, part of the procedure – the bodies were admitted through the admissions area and the bodies would be all the documentation gathered and um, the bodies would be placed in the um, mortuary refrigeration area until um, the autop- it was decided if an autopsy was necessary and um, how that would be performed. Uh, then if an autopsy was going to be performed, um, the body would be wheeled into the mortuary area. Um, the clothes would have been removed, except in the case of homicides where the clothes are left for the pathologist to remove in the presence of the police and the police um, gather the evidence, as you know. But um, otherwise, the body is placed on a, a, a trolley and placed into the mortuary and uh, onto a mortuary table where the um, dissection begins after an external examination looking for any scars or bruises or anything else that um, needs to be documented which might give clues as to what actually happened. Can you tell us how you dissect the body? The dissection um, is... um, is often carried out by the mortuary technician or the, the initial dissection. The um, Usually a large um, incision is made um, down the centre of the, the body and 
the skin sort of peeled back so the abdominal and thoracic contents can be examined, usually by removing them from the actual body. But again, the technician does that. And so if the technician does that, where is the pathologist? Standing beside them. Okay. And are you, as a pathologist, are you directing or are you asking questions like, what is your role if the role of the um, assistant is to actually um, do the opening of the, the skin and um, taking out the, the body parts? Yes, um, we're standing there watching them and directing them to do something or saying, hang on, that looks a bit strange. Um, leave that alone. I'll have a look at that. And, um, yes, very much directing it. Yep. Okay. I must admit I find as a detective an incredible – I don't know how to describe it, but I feel very privileged in a way to be at um, an autopsy Privileged, I don't quite know how to explain it, but to see the the care, number one, is I could, not that I think you'd throw the body around, but I just couldn't get over the care and just so kind and gentle. And I always found it incredible when, you know, you'd bring out a lung or you'd bring out a brain and I'm thinking they are holding somebody's somebody's loved one's brain in their hand. Like I, I just find that, I don't know what, privileged is the only word I can think of. Yes, but but that now is really a, a scientific um, object now that it's not a person anymore. The person has gone and is no longer there. So now we're looking at the, scientific remains, if you like. Um, yes, we always do treat the, um, the deceased with respect, with respect to the person that they, they once were. And, um, but now we're looking at, at the scientific object and, um, and that also needs to be treated um, very cautiously same as, again, any scientific object so, such that you're not destroying what science there is or contaminating or um, making things even more difficult to interpret. So um, that's why um, or that's the way in which we handle these things. And see, that's exactly what I mean about you are obviously very good at or you, you would have to be able to compartmentalise what you are doing. That And you just said then it's a scientific um, process, it, it is a job that you have to do, whereas I can't help but see the person. And that's why you're obviously very good at what you do and being able to put that aside because I just can't help but see them as, yeah, as I said, as a person but you don't see it like that, obviously. No, no. As I said, the person has gone. Um, we're now looking at the, the science. Mm, amazing. How many um, deceased people would be in those fridges that you're talking about when they come in um, through um, admissions? How many bodies are in a, a fridge at one time? Oh, it varies enormously. Um, but... Um, probably uh, can be 
up to um, well, 20 to 50, but perhaps even more if there has been some sort of catastrophic event. How many autopsies or can I do I call them autopsies? Because I was just going to ask how many would you do or could you do a day? Um, when I was working there, I usually only did um, uh, two a day. Um, occasionally, if, if it was really necessary, do more, but generally only two a day. Okay, so h- how long would a normal autopsy take? A uh, couple of hours. Okay. I, I find it very interesting to be part of that um, autopsy as the police were behind the uh, glass screen and I find it interesting the talk between the the mortuary assistant and yourself and if you find something you'll say um, you'll talk to us behind the the um, screen to say oh there's a um, you know a wound it looks uh, and you know you, you'd give us the um, uh, dimensions etc and we could actually ask you questions um, oh I just found that to be involved that intimately I suppose I always found it incredible what you can tell us from what you're examining yeah um but i mean again that's what um we're trying to do but um there are a lot of things that perhaps we we can't tell too we need to do other investigations such as get the um toxicology laboratory results hey i'm ryan reynolds recently i asked mint mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes and then when i asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts they said what the f*** are you talking about you insane hollywood ass so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
and look at um, parts of the body that we've kept for microscopic examination, all those things, which is why an autopsy report to be finalised may take weeks rather than um you know, the two hours I said to, to perform the autopsy, but to compile the actual report takes a lot longer, um, as uh, not as in shows like um, CSI where um, the <laughs> autopsy is all over, um, you know, in half an hour and they're clutching the report the, the next day. Um, that yeah, doesn't if only they knew the re- Yeah, if only they knew reality. <laughs> That's right, yes. <laughs> Actually, I... Uh, you were probably there when I was, uh, when I was a detective, but I can remember the old days uh, at the at Flinders Street and you were actually in the room with the, uh, the deceased. There was no glass partition. Do you remember those days? No glass partition. Yes, yes, I started there. Oh, yes. my goodness. That was, and I can always remember, I don't know if it was a joke and you might be able to tell me, but I can remember as a trainee they took us in to show us how an autopsy's done and, um, and we all actually stood around uh, the body and I always remember, I st- even in the street now, I look at people and if there is the certain description that I remember this young man um, that they did the autopsy when we went in to look um, as a trainee, I can still remember him like it was yesterday. And he was only about 25 and he'd had an appendicitis attack and he passed away. And I can always remember sitting, uh, standing around and, you know, a number of my colleagues were um, fainting. There was a couple being sick. And at one stage there, there was a couple of, they must have been assistants or something, but they were sort of down the back of the autopsy room and they opened their lunch and started eating sandwiches. I'll never forget that. Did you used to do that as a bit of fun or was that really you really actually had your lunch in the room? No, we never ate in the mortuary. Um, even in those days, there were should have been quite strict occupational health and safety um, yeah. rules. But um, the problem with the that old mortuary uh, and having people standing around is really what you just described with people passing out and, and throwing up um, mm. that weren't used to it. And that's... Um, why it was a much relief to move to the um, now um, institute and have a, a mortuary with a, a, a proper viewing room where the, the people watching the autopsy don't have to actually come in and if they do pass out, that can be dealt with a lot better than passing out on the floor of the mortuary. Yeah, yeah. And I suppose these days too, it can only be a good thing that we're um, – separated with that glass because I'm just thinking to myself like the transference of any sort of contact or um, I don't know if somebody coughed or you know COVID I mean we're all become very um, uh, susceptible or uh, concerned about that but when you think about what could be transferred you know when we're all standing around and we, we were literally almost on top of the body. Yes yeah yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, have you ever conducted an autopsy which has um, affected you in any way? Um, I must say I um, was, I've always been affected 
particularly by people just doing their um, jobs um, and getting killed in that scenario. Uh, for example, the police shootings, that um, always bothered me considerably. And um, also some of the, the Black Saturday fires, people um, brought in still clutching dogs, um, that sort of thing really did get to me, mm. I must say. But also, Shelley, you wouldn't be a normal human being if that didn't affect you. And I'm thinking if it didn't affect you, there's something wrong, isn't there? Yes, I suppose so. Yeah. Um, so the police shootings, are you talking about the actual policemen that were brought in that you had to um, examine? Yes. Or people that police have shot? No, the police themselves oh, yeah. being shot. Yeah. Yeah. Is is there a particular type of autopsy that you dread or you'd prefer not to do? Um, no, not really. So I'm just thinking now, what about autopsies on, say, children or little babies? Like, uh, is that something that somebody will say, oh, I can't do that or I'd prefer not to? Does that happen in in the mortuary? Um, no, not usually. There are people who, um, or there were people who specialised in um, those sort of autopsies and it certainly wasn't my specialty. But um, um, no, again, I think that's more a bit of a, a TV thing. You know, I couldn't possibly do that autopsy because it was a child. Um, yes, that's more of what you see on TV. But uh, again, you know, if it's there to be done and same as any other autopsy, the information needs to be found. You just go ahead mm. and find it. I suppose it's like any job you're able, as we keep talking about, you're able to compartmentalise th that this is my job and you're able to put a lot of the other feelings and emotions aside. Yes, I think so. Mm. Mm. Have you ever experienced a situation where you've conducted an autopsy during the day and then that evening on TV you've watched a segment on, uh, I don't know, the person that you've conducted the autopsy on? Has, has that ever happened to you? Oh, yes, yes. Oh, really? Does that, yeah. does that, how does that make you feel? No, it's, it's well, I guess it's, it's more interesting to see what someone else thought was going on or someone else's interpretation of, mm. of, um, of that particular death. Mm. Um, you're also a specialist advisor and consultant um, with this is with for, Air, your your um, company, where a law firm may seek your expertise in a homicide or a murder investigation. Can you tell us about when and why a law firm may seek your expertise? Um, well, I guess they have a client who says. Um, no, that's not the way it happened, looking at the autopsy report or the, the coroner's report. Mm. Um, so I need someone else's opinion as to how that occurred or what else might have happened. Mm. So um, that's the situation where I get a case like that referred. And do you get that sort of um, case a lot? Like is, is that common? No, I've, I've done um, a, a few of these sorts of cases, but... Um, I'm very much winding down these days now, so. Aren't we all? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I understand that. Um, 
What about giving evidence in court? Uh, it's never a pleasant experience, but I'm assuming that you've been um, you've given a lot of expert evidence many, many times. Um, have you got a, a terrible experience in a courtroom that you can share with us, or a good one? Something that you've that stayed with you? Um, at first, I was. Um very sort of traumatised by going to court. Um, I bet you I were. believe the, mm. the legal profession <laughs> gave gave us a very hard time. Mm. And I also didn't know very much about our legal system at all. And I don't like being um, working in ignorance, if you like. So I decided to go back to university and, and do law. Mm. So I did a uh, law degree. And uh, to me, that was a whole sort of area opened up and I realised how these um, barristers are performing and why they're performing like that and also um, the sorts of things that they're, they're doing and how to counteract it. So it was actually a very useful exercise on my part and um, now I'm, I'm not the slightest bit traumatised by appearing in court. What's the biggest lesson you learned uh, with your law degree and giving evidence in court, what's the biggest lesson you learned about what barristers will do and how you respond? Well, the th- first thing I, uh, or the biggest thing I think I learned was that they're actually doing what we are taught to do in, as part of the, the law degree, which is um, make the witness um, look unreliable. So... Mm-hmm. Uh, if you realise that that's happening, you can develop a few strategies, if you like, to um, get over that. Um, one thing I, I learnt was, for example, uh, some barristers would ask questions with multiple negatives and <laughs> in, in, in the question. So at the end, you didn't know whether you were coming or going or whether the answer should be yes <laughs> or no. That is so true. And I, <laughs> and I found the easiest thing in that case was to just look a bit blank and say, could you repeat the question, please? And um, that often worked with that one. Um, but um, but we were actually taught these these things in, in law school um, as part of our advocacy program, and I found that very interesting because uh, um, once I realised what they were actually doing, mm. it was much easier to counteract. Mm. But you're right there um, about the, when they ask those questions and there's, you know, about 10 questions in the one and often you put the pressure back on them by asking if they can repeat it because it also gives you a little bit of time to think about the answer as well, don't you find? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I I don't know about you, but I was always taught uh, the more you say in the witness box, the more um, fuel you're giving um, a barrister or a solicitor to um, have a go at you and we were always taught to as much as we can say yes or no because the minute you start trying to justify your yes or your no you're giving them just more information to um, I don't know so well I used to think they were picking on me but they're not they're just doing their job it's just their client isn't it they're uh, yeah. it's their client and their job is to represent that client 
Yes. Uh, one of the other things that I learned to do was uh, a barrister will often start with, I put it to you and then go on with whatever they're putting to you. And I'll just sit there, stand there. And they say, well, doctor. And I say, what was the question? <laughs> yes. <laughs> no. uh, the law degree was probably one of the best things you did. But I would have thought um, that you would have had some sort of training as a forensic pathologist that you would be called to give evidence at court quite a lot. And I'm surprised that you weren't uh, given any, I don't know, court you know, moot court situations or somewhere where they might sort of teach you a little bit about the tricks of the trade? Uh, it may be the case nowadays, I'm not sure, but certainly not in the days when I was trained, no. Mm-hmm. Um, feel free not to answer the following questions, but I wondered if I could ask your thoughts on a couple of notable cases here in Victoria. Um, and if you don't feel comfortable commenting, please say, but... One of them that's really fascinated me is the um, the case of Phoebe, I don't know how you say her name, Handsjuk or whatever, but um, she's a young lady who a coroner found fell feet first 12 floors down a rubbish chute here in, I think it was St Kilda Road. Uh, there's been a lot of discussion over the years about the case uh, due to lots of inconsistencies, lots of theories and lots of rumours. And I'm not asking you to comment on the coroner's finding, but do you have any personal thoughts on that case? Uh, I wasn't directly involved with that case, but um, I was I- interested in in following it. Mm. And um, you and me both. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I think it's uh, extremely unlikely that um, she fell down the um, the garbage chute, mm. as was described. Mm. Yes, I followed that with interest too, because um, for those listeners that aren't aware, Phoebe was, I think, living with the son of a county court judge, was it, Shelley? No, Supreme Court judge. Supreme Court judge, yes, that's right. Yes, and, uh, oh, gee, it was, um, yes, I I would have loved to have um, known a bit more about that case, but we only know what we hear, so what what can we do? And what about your thoughts on... The older couple, they've only gone missing in the last 12 months or so in the high country. Uh, they've never been found. They had some sort of a oh, an, uh, an alleged affair. Um, and, again, there's been lots of rumours about them staging their own deaths, being eaten by wild animals. Do you have any thoughts on that investigation? Well, that, um, that place from where they were last seen, the Wanangatta Valley, has always fascinated me. In fact, that's probably um, also partly responsible for me ending up as a forensic pathologist. Mm -hmm. Um, When I was a medical student, um, a a doctor um, who another medical student was working for um, doing these placements in our final year of of medical school, he decided that uh, he was needed to go for a uh, a weekend away, and so he took the student uh, who was working for him, and um, I was invited to go along too. 
and we went to this Wanongata Valley and because um, he said it was very interesting and told me the story of the original Wanongata Valley murders um, and I saw what was probably my first <laughs> a crime scene, if you like, and have been fascinated by it ever since. So I think it's a fascinating place. It's in the middle of absolute nowhere. Um, certainly is. <laughs> but, um, yes, I, I really don't have any strong views on, on what's happened to these, um, these people. Um, I expect that um, we'll find out eventually, but um, mm. it may take quite some time. So seeing, I don't know the place well, but seeing that you obviously do, do you, is it possible that a wild animal could devour a deceased person to the point where there was nothing left behind? Is that possible? No, I don't think so. Um, I think you've been watching too much TV, Narelle. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, what I'm actually asking for is not so much for myself but for my listeners because um, – uh, remembering I don't have a TV, but I know my listeners watch a lot of um, Silent Witness. They watch a, watch a lot of CSI. They watch a lot of crime shows. Um, and I think that would be a question that some people might ask. So what you're saying is you don't believe that a wild animal could do that? No. They they usually leave. Um, uh, look, animals can leave um and, and insects too can devour a lot um, of particularly soft tissues, but there's usually bones of some sort left behind. Um, so one would expect to find something, even though there might have, way well have been animal and insect damage. Mm-hmm. Actually, while we're on Silent Witness and CSI TV shows, in those TV shows, and I know it's TV, uh, but they seem to have quite a uh, strong relationship with the police. Uh, they work very, very closely together. Did you find that in your time with VIFM? Uh, yes, um, worked quite closely with the um, investigating officers and um Again, you know, if we've we found something or we had a question that needed to be answered, it was it was good to be able to talk to them. Yeah, yeah. You said um, uh, you mentioned about Black Saturday working with on Black Saturday. Uh, I think that's um, something that most police working in that when was that two thousand and. Was it 2009? Uh, possible. I can't, I can't remember. Oh, two th- oh, anyway, whenever it be, but uh, that had an effect on a lot of people, didn't it? Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. Um, going back to the bodies in, um, in the wild, in general terms, would you have any idea how long it would take for a deceased body to decompose in the wild? Oh, it depends enormously on, um, well, where the body actually is. Is it lying in an open plain or beneath trees or beneath rocks or dirt or enormously variable? And um, it, uh, it, uh, those things need to be established um, if you're trying to determine the cause of death or the time of death, sorry, how long the body's been out there because, it, as I said, it's enormously variable. Yeah, I suppose um, one would 
um, a, you'd probably a body that is in the freezing cold is going to last a lot longer than a body that's in forty-one degree heat. Yes, in, yes, yeah, yeah. Um, do you have any thoughts on Mister Cruel, the abduction and rape of? Um, Carmen Chan and there was another Nicola Linus. I can't remember the name of the other little girl, Sharon somebody. But do you have any ideas on him? I do have on Carmen Chan, but um, which uh, she used to live just around the corner from me. Uh, I drive of past yes. her house every day. <laughs> but, um, yes, and uh, we'd just moved into the the region um, when that occurred, and we were standing uh, at a at a friend's place um, one evening um, after dinner, and all of a sudden there were all these flashing lights and helicopters whirring about, and, and uh, yes, so I remember that quite distinctly. But um, mm. um, yes, uh, I'm not sure that um, I believe that Mr. Cruel was responsible for that murder. I was going to ask you one more. I have, um, I'm going to ask you something about an operation that I was involved in. I was the informant for, and it's called Operation Collier. Um, It's an unsolved case where an unidentified male abducted and raped six, I think possibly more, young women in and around the Dandenong Ranges in the 90s. Um, I was going to ask you, in your opinion, is it possible to abduct, rape and then release a victim and there be no DNA or any other type of trace evidence located on the person? And I only ask that because there's a saying that we were taught at DTS that you would know very well and that's the saying is every contact leaves its traces. So I'm not being critical of the scientists, um, but is it the case that something would have been there on one of the victims, but we just weren't able to find it? Is that possible? Look, I think it's I think it's highly likely that there would be traces there. But again, you know, you're, you're saying this was in the the 90s. Um, you know, the science is improving all the time. The technology and the things that we're we're able to ascertain. Um, but it, it also is a matter of how hard you look and what you look for. But as I said, it's advancing all the time. So um, it might be different than, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Mm. I'm sure it would be. But also if we keep, let's say we keep, I don't know, let's say a top or a blanket or something from 15 years ago, they can now find things on that top or that blanket DNA-wise that, they wouldn't have had a hope of finding that long ago. It, that's right, isn't it, from a, a forensic pathology point of view? Yes, yes. That's why you should never throw anything out no, evidence-wise. No. <laughs> no. Yeah, I can remember being at the um, uh, crime squads and there was a stage where they were trying to get rid of all this property um, out at McLeod and we just had this, – this was in the 90s, early 90s – and. We had to sign, yeah, no, we've done that, all we can about that investigation and they got rid of property. Like when you look back, what a mistake that was. But anyway, they weren't to know, but, yeah, it's why you should always keep it. Well, Shelley, um, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, to say it's been enlightening would be an understatement, um, but thank you for your insight into a world that not many of us know. <laughs> Thanks, Narelle. Thank you for your time. That's okay. Enjoyed it. 
it's Narelle here again. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoy the podcasts as much as we enjoy putting them together. But to make sure you never miss an episode of Narelle Fraser Interviews, hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a rating and even a review. And please share it with all your friends too. And again, thanks for joining us. We have got some amazing stories to tell. So thanks again. See ya. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.